This is Podcast Radio. I'm Mark Pendergast. And when it comes to TV shows that are omnipresent, they're always there. Nature Watch is one of those. And Chris Packham, presenter of Nature Watch, has been an ever-present on our TV screens for almost 30 years now. Whether it was the Really Wild show on children's television or moving on to Nature Watch in later years, he is one of the go-to guys when it comes to all things outdoor and nature. But it's more than just watching squirrels in the woods. There's a serious side to Chris as well. Here he talks about how climate change protesters could end up being heroes in the future, how young people are the key when it comes to tackling climate change, and there's three things that he would change to improve the planet for everybody. It's not tree-hugging, it's sound, sensible advice. So, a series of artworks has been commissioned, and I'll be at the Eden Project, one veil one by Jodie Thomas, and the feature of this, the star, is Millie Revel Haywood. And she's a young woman who's been working in the north of Scotland on the Flows to the Future project. Now, this is about the flow country. It's about blanket bog. It's about fabulous habitat, which we're very fortunate to have some of in the UK. Brilliant for its biodiversity, all sorts of sexy species living there from tiny spiders to, to some fabulous birds. But it's also a, obviously a great carbon sink. And, and very sadly, in our lifetimes, it's been quite significantly damaged. Millie was brought up and gr- has grown up in that area. It's part of our community. And the lottery is always very keen to support community uh, initiatives and people working locally. She now works for the RSPB and she's become a champion for this particular habitat and its restoration. And its restoration is in progress, but it's going to take a long time. So I'm really keen that we celebrate young people whose efforts, energies, ambitions, and and abilities are, are are really making a difference. I find them truly inspirational. So I'm really looking forward to putting Millie on that platform where she can be celebrated for the work that she's doing up there. It seems to be, doesn't it? It's young people who are leading the line on this. The the grumpy old man, if you like, and I don't know whether we include yourself and me in, in that in that equation. But the, the the older people get this this the less they seem to care about these things, and the less passionate they are about them. Yeah, I've got a lot of guilt on my shoulders because, I mean, uh, the damage that was done to that flow country, those blanket bogs, those peatlands, those incredibly important parts of the UK landscape, was largely done in my lifetime. Through tax incentives in the 1970s and 80s, a lot of it was afforested. It had you know, non-native conifers put onto it. They haven't grown properly. It wasn't the great substrate for these particular trees. But of course, it was drained to facilitate that type of... And as a consequence, now we have to remove those trees sensitively. It's very difficult to, to do that because you can't send heavy equipment you know, plowing up the bogs. That would be counterproductive. So it's a long-term project, and, and it's not going to happen in my lifetime. So in my lifetime, I've seen it damaged. In my lifetime, I'm not going to see it fixed. That's why I'm so keen to champion people like Millie, because you know they are acting for a different generation. And as you say, they're doing things more urgently, more clearly, with less risk adversity, because they don't have a choice. They, the writing is on the wall for them. They're going to be living in a very different world than that that you and I have enjoyed. And so I want to do everything I can to support their endeavors at this stage. And I get a little bit fed up now when people say, well, it's great that these young people are speaking up. It's time that we should start listening to them. Well, I find that a little patronizing. We should go a lot further than listening to people like Melly. We should trust them to, to make decisions because they do make bold and brave decisions. And that's what's needed at the moment to, to deal with our climate and biodiversity crisis. It's turned into a different thing though, hasn't it? It's turned into a political sphere now. It's the, you know, you're the sort of tree hugging leftist if you're into if you believe in climate change and then if you don't you're the you're the right wing you're you know you're like donald trumpist that kind of thing it's 
it's got very, very strange now, hasn't it? The way you, you know, it, the fact is, it's happening, but people are still politicising it whilst it, it continues on. I think people do politicise it. I mean, I think the scientists are, are, are writing very clearly on the wall, and this, in, in science we trust. So there is no ambiguity about the fact that climate change is real, and we are precipitating it and exacerbating it. And we're clearly not doing enough rapidly enough to address it. So I think that, very sadly, the human species is remarkably resourceful, adaptable and intelligent. But sometimes it needs to trip over before it, it realises it's in big trouble. We're, we're a lot better at cure than prevention. And I think that when everyone is feeling the pinch when it comes to climate change... Because it's too easy to forget what we see on our televisions when we watch Pakistan flooded or Australia on fire or California on fire, or Greece on fire. You know, we've just been through the hottest year on record in the UK. And in successive years now, we're going to see real impacts on our lives. The price of food will, will go up. There, there will be water shortages without a shred of a doubt. We will see differences in our environment and that will impact us socially and economically. And I think at that point, whether you're on the left or the right will become immaterial because we are one species on one planet with one massive problem to sort out. And this is our last chance to sort it out. So I, I think optimistically, at a certain point, we will come together to address this issue. And the naysayers will be long forgotten by then. In terms of the naysayers, though, it, it seems to be everything creeps up, doesn't it? You know, there's a, the storm from last year is slightly more intense than the, the year before or you know, it's slightly hotter. It's, it's, it's not like the Armageddon type thing that people react to. It's, it's a creeping problem. And that, that seems to be as a political thing, because you're obviously voted in every four years or you're not there permanently. It's, it's not something that they're keen to act on quickly, is it? No, our system of governance is about terms of office, which are short terms of office. And as a consequence, you know, we aren't seeing the, the bravery. We're not seeing the investment. We're not seeing the care and the consideration in, in governments around the world that we need. Fixing this problem is, is a long-term fix, but it's one that we need to invest in urgently now. So the successive short-termism that we're seeing is counterproductive. People are saying, you know, we need to build our way out of a crisis. We, essentially, we need to consume more. We need, to, we need more growth. Well, we do need growth, but we need green growth. We need sustainable growth. We need rational and reasonable growth, balanced growth. And we also need a lot more equality. We cannot continue to consume as much as we do in the developed world at the expense of the developing world. And that's why at COP26 at the moment, the, the biggest thing on the agenda for most environmentalists, curious, curiously, is economics. Because the, the developed world will have to put its hand in its pocket to help out those nations that can't afford to address, the, address this issue itself. And, and that's only fair because, frankly, we've made most of this mess. And it's highly unfair that they are dealing with it at this point in time, in a lot more pain than we are. Do you think it's something that people are willing to swallow, though, you know, a reduction in your lifestyle? I mean, I was, I was watching a YouTube video the other day where they were talking about the, the way they used to build houses in New York and had very small entryways and very small areas for storage because people just didn't consume the same amount 100 years ago. You know, they weren't throwing away tons of plastic. They weren't throwing away paper. Everything was reused and, you know, there was tiny amounts of things thrown away. Are we ever going to be willing to go back to that or are we ever going to be willing to give up the things that we enjoy now and the convenience of life? Well, I think we have to ask questions about our consumption. I mean, what, what makes us happy? Does getting a, a new mobile phone make 
you happy? Does getting a new flat screen TV make you happy? Or is it what you do with the phone that makes you happy or what you see on the screen? You know, we've got to think about how the quality, we measure the quality of our, our lives. And, and certainly if our houses are on fire or underwater, our businesses are, are ruined and failing and our family are imperiled, then that isn't going to make us happy and that isn't going to enhance the quality of our life. So yes, change is, is necessary. I don't necessarily, no one's suggesting we go back to caves and eat carrots. I, it's too often it's seen as a, a negative thing. Change is sometimes it might be necessary, but it isn't necessarily negative. So I think that we've got to think ab ab about how we adapt. And at the moment, we are caught in a, in a system which encourages us to consume at all times. We walk out of our houses, our offices, our schools, and we are surrounded by advertising, which is it trying to encourage us to consume more. Well, we have to consume more carefully and, 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 and we have to make things that last longer and are of higher quality. And, and, and that's one thing that we will have to adjust to. We will have to change our diet and we'll have to change the way that we use energy and produce that energy. But it doesn't have to be uncomfortable. It's, it's not all negative. A lot of it, I think, would be very positive. Do you think the will is there as we head into a, another COP? It seems to be one after the other after the other, and there's a lot of talk and not too much action. I think there's an enormous amount of will. I think there's no doubt about that. I see will in, in the minds and actions of young people like Millie Revel Hayward and, and many others who took to the streets with their school climate strikes and have taken to the streets in all sorts of other demonstrations since. I see will in the scientists and I see will in, in the public where I don't see enough will at this point of time is in the top level decision makers. There will be plenty of people at COP, politicians from around the world, who forthrightly understand the need to introduce adaptation and real action at this point. Unfortunately, the leaders above them are still fixated on the short-term solutions. So that's what causes me temporary pain. Although every time there is a COP, there is more pressure on those top level governors to take more action. I mean, look at this on this occasion. Mr. Sunak said initially that he wasn't going to go. There was sufficient public and political outcry for him to perform a U-turn and go, as he rightly should, of course. Um, and that is real pressure that's being put on them to make a decision. Now, whether they make those decisions this year or next will come at a terrible cost if they fail to do so. But at least we're edging closer to the point where those you know, top-level governors will be in a position where they have no choice but make those right decisions. You look at people who are protesting about climate change now, and they're, they're completely demonised by the media. I mean, even today as we speak now, there's been people blocking the M25, completely demonised instantly by the media, demonised by politicians. Do you see it in like 100 years' time, or maybe even less, the rate we're going, that they'll be seen like the suffragettes, they'll be seen as they were, they were the ones who knew what was going on, they were the ones who tried to do something about it, and it was the governments and the authorities that were wrong. We'll put up statues to those people if we're here to do it, and their grandchildren will look upon them with absolute pride. They are brave people at this point in time. They do face the, the wrath, the billionaire press, which comes with an agenda. They do, therefore, face the wrath of a public, which fails to understand their motivation when it's considering their, their methods. Now, of course, they're causing inconvenience. The inconvenience is there to make us all think. 
I got stuck for four and a half hours on the M25 this this summer because of one of those protests. And I thought about what they were doing for four and a half hours. And I admired those young people bravely for going, of course I was late. Of course it was an inconvenience. And of course the, the billionaire press can continue to circulate stories about blocked ambulances and things like that. But we've revealed there was no substance of those stories on, on every occasion that's been verified. Emergency vehicles have been let through. These people are not savages. These people are terrified of their future. And they found the courage to express that terror and try and communicate it to the rest of us. So, you know, as much as we may find their their methods inconvenient, let, let's look beyond that and think about what their motives are. And their motives are, you know, very, very heartfelt and, and they're very essential. Do you find yourself having to justify yourself more and more now than you did maybe a few years ago? Yeah, I think I do. But then, you know, the point is when you ask people to change their minds more quickly than they want to, they are bound to resist. A certain section of of that society is bound to resist. Sometimes their method of resisting isn't terribly palatable. I am the victim of daily hate crime on social media, I would argue, and, and other threats to my life and its existence. But you know, I see that as part of a process, as those campaigners do. And at this point in time, I, I will always have science behind me. I speak from a, a position of, of currently informed science. Of course, science changes, but then I, you know, like I've said, you know, we all have to change our minds. So I, I, I feel secure, mentally secure in my aims and objectives, and therefore I won't be swayed by intimidation or, or or violence. I, I can't be. I'm 61 years old. I, I'm living in a world which is going to have a handcart, a very beautiful and unique world. And so like many others, I have, have no choice but to do everything I can to try and protect it with the time that I've got left. Seems to be, doesn't it? This, you're talking like this, like you're a politician, like you're an activist. And, and I think back to your, you know, your early days with TV and things like that. It was all fun, wasn't it? It was nature. And people enjoyed it. No one, no one disagreed with it. No one, no one said this isn't right. We shouldn't look after nature. What's what's gone wrong? Why why is this happening? I think we're disconnected from from nature. And and one of the principal aims that we've been trying very hard and succeeding with, I think, with our television and media work, is is developing an affinity for the natural world. And that's one of our jobs: is to show people just how remarkable it is, how beautiful it is, how fascinating it curious it, it, it all is. And now we've switched to show people how valuable it is and necessary it is from our own species perspective. So there's been a change in our vocational input into those programs. And I would argue that many of them are meeting that that target. We could go further, of course. And I think we're going, we are now stepping up to the game. And, and some of the broadcasts that we're seeing from mainstream media are addressing more forthrightly and, and telling the truth more, uh, more, more urgently than they were in, in the past. But yeah, we live in a divided world. I don't think this is down to necessarily our attitudes to the natural world. Things have become polarized. It's been part and parcel of our lives, very sadly, in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. And it seems to have reached a a crisis point. But, you know, calmly behind the scenes, the scientists continue to investigate. Um, People come up with technologies and abilities to rectify the problems. And it's up to people like myself to act as a vector between them and the public who we're asking to accept those technologies and implement them in their lives to make a difference for, for all of us. You're in charge. I'm going to put you in charge now. And we're not saying there's any quick fixes, but what things, three to five things, would you change instantly that would make it, you think will make a difference and, and move things along quickly? 
Okay, so the first thing is I would immediately cease the further exploration of fossil fuels in the UK. And I would work through a transition away from using fossil fuels into renewable energies. And I would invest very heavily in those renewable energies. And so in the UK, we're looking at wind and, and solar primarily there. And I would make sure that those we win the hearts and minds of the general public when it comes to that transition. So that's working with people rather than against people. The second thing I would look at very seriously is food and food production. So how we consume that food and, and where it comes from. And then, of course, how it's produced. And I would invest heavily in a transition when it comes to agriculture in, in the UK, helping our food producers, essentially our farmers, again, work through a transition where they produce the food in a more sustainable way in terms of the, the landscape that they're looking after. And also in terms of the way that we use that food. And in conjunction, we work with the public because we waste a third of the food that we buy from the supermarkets, which is utterly untenable. It's a disgrace and an insult to the people that have produced it, if nothing more. But we can't afford to continue to, 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 to do that. There's no question. And, and then I would make sure that we offer proper protection to that landscape, you know, to protect biodiversity and the ecosystems that we are reliant on to produce that food. So again, I would, I would make sure that as this government have pledged that, you know, that by 2030, 30% of our landscape and 30% of our seas are, are, are properly protected with nature in mind and not cursory protections. I'm talking about proper, proper management of, of, of that. And then I suppose I, I would invest very heavily in education. You may think I'm moving off topic now as, uh, you know, as an environmentalist, but I think that education is at the core of everything we do. And you've spoken of some of the problems that we face when it comes to convincing people to change their lifestyles, change their minds and practices. And I think that we could better address those if we had a, a, a better education system without a shred of a doubt. And then again, going back to something else that you've said, which is about lifestyle and asking people to recognize that their lives in the future will unfortunately necessarily be different, but not any worse than they are now if they take on board the, uh, the technologies and opportunities to use those technologies in their life. And that brings us to, to health. And, and again, for personal reasons, I would, I would make sure that we're properly supporting a health system, which is fit for purpose and is, you know, with, with significant investment to support all of those working in it. So it's functional for all of those that need it. And that would can also include considerable in investment in mental health services, which have fallen away and lead to all sorts of problems at this point in time. So for me, it would be a mixture of wildlife, if you like, or, or life and, and humans. And making sure that we see that there is a clear connection between the health and well-being of both of those things when it comes to a future sustainable planet. Chris, that sounds informed and sensible. You'll never make it in politics. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking to us today. No, you're most welcome. Chris Packham of Nature Watch on Podcast Radio. And for more big name interviews, just go to the website podcastradionetwork.com. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.